This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Borat has been making some really funny appearances on talk shows, but his creator, Sasha Baron Cohen, has largely declined to appear as himself. So I'm very happy to say that our guest today is Sasha Baron Cohen. In Rolling Stone magazine, Neil Strauss described the movie Borat as one of the greatest comedies of the last decade and perhaps even a whole new genre of film. Sasha Baron Cohen won the Best Actor Award from the L.A. Film Critics Association and is nominated for a Golden Globe. The movie features Baron Cohen as a TV reporter from Kazakhstan who's come to America to make a documentary. Although Borat is a fictional character, the situations Baron Cohen puts him in are, for the most part, real, and the people he interacts with have no idea that Borat is just a character. They have to figure out how to respond to Borat's obsessions with the dangers of Jews, gays, and gypsies, his preoccupation with sex, and his belief that it's the job of women to serve men. Here's a scene from the film with Borat taking a driving lesson. My name is Mike. I'm going to be your driving instructor. Welcome to our country, okay? Uh, my name is Borat. Okay, okay, good, good. Well, I'm not used to that, but that's fine. You use two hands now. What? Two hands. But then it looked like I am holding a gypsy while he eats my crumb. I don't care what it looks like. You use two hands when you drive, okay? Okay. You want to have a drink? You can't drink that while you're driving. It's against, Why not? It's against the law. What? Look, there is a woman in a car. Can we follow her and no, no. maybe make a sexy no, time with her? No, 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 no. Why not? Because a woman has a right to choose who she has sex with. What? How about that? Isn't that you amazing? Joke? There must be consent. How about that? <laughs> That's good, huh? It's not good for me. Sasha Baron Cohen, welcome to Fresh Air. You know, lots of comics have created characters that they do in sketches, like everybody on Saturday Night Live, but you take your characters into the real world, which is part of what makes it so incredible. How did you start doing that? I started about 10 years ago. I was doing a TV show in London. And I was doing a, an early form of a character that I used to do called Ellie G, who's a kind of hip-hop journalist, a, a wankster reporter. And um, at the time, he was just... Um, he, it was just a character that I was recording, you know, little segments for. And then I went out onto the street to record a particular segment... And I saw this group of skateboarders and the director I was with gave me a little nod and I went up to them and approached them and started interacting with them in character. And then to my surprise, they actually um, took me seriously. And when I was doing some kind of terrible skateboarding tricks, they were laughing at me and they were mocking me. And then after a couple of minutes, I you know, went back to my normal voice and I said, you know, this is a character. And they were really surprised. At which point I realized that people would believe me when I, you know, when I did this character. So uh, a tourist bus suddenly turned up. I jumped on it with the car camera, uh, kind of commandeered the tourist bus, uh, got dropped off, went into a pub, started breakdancing. The police were called, went into a, um, the offices of this major multinational, asked to see my father on the 14th floor, the police were called again, and suddenly I realized there was this, there was never a question of whether I was actually the character or not, but there was this incredibly exciting form of comedy that I was suddenly in the middle of. 
once you realized you could do it, why did you want to keep doing it? What could you do that way that you couldn't do with regular comedy on a stage? Well, I think there was an added element of satire. Uh, for example, when I first started doing Ball Rat, I realized that it was a way to get people to really open up. And at the time, you know, I realized that documentary was essentially, you know, the one of the ultimate aims of documentaries were to make people feel so comfortable that they would forget the cameras were there and they'd really uh, say their true feelings. Um, and here was a way, you know, by creating a foreign character where people would really explain what they genuinely felt about particular subjects. But immediately, you wouldn't have to leave a camera in the room for three months before they'd start opening up. And does having a character who's kind of stupid help to <laughs> to people explain themselves more to somebody who they think is a little backwards? Definitely. By having somebody who's totally naive, who doesn't know how to flush a toilet who doesn't know uh, how to cross a road or anything that we take for granted in Western society. You've got this wonderful mechanism of allowing people to really explain what their values are and how society functions in the West. So before we talk a little bit more about taking your characters into the real world, tell us a little bit about how you created Borat and why you created him as a character from Kazakhstan as opposed to, say, Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan or any other place in the world. Well, Borat was influenced by a character I met when I was in southern Russia at the age of 23. Um, it was a doctor that I met who was immediately started making me laugh the moment I met him. He started going, Are oh, you from England? You're from England. You say a cook. Yes, you say a cook. Americans, they say cock. And within about 20 seconds, this guy had <laughs> got me, cry, me and my friend crying with laughter. Um, and I didn't really know why it was, but um, a couple of years later, once I started developing this whole undercover comedy, I took out a... I knew I wanted to do a foreign character, and I was driving in my car, and I had the cameraman in the back, and I just said, all right, let's get out here. And he goes, all right, where's the character going to be from? And I just said, all right, let's... I, I looked in the back of the car, and I had a a hat from Astrakhan, which is in southern Russia. And I said, all right, I'll stick this on. I'll, I'll make the character Moldovian. And I came out with this original early form of Borat, uh, where I was in the east end of London, and I was asking people to explain what it means to be a cockney. What is to be a cockney? What is a Lambeth walk? <laughs> and people were really explaining themselves. And um, it just suddenly felt like this, there was this kind of brilliant mechanism to get that was naive and simple and childlike and... A warm and lovable, but also this real tool to get people to expose themselves. And uh, th to answer the second half of the question, the reason why um, I chose Kazakhstan and we chose Kazakhstan at the time because I was working with a couple of other guys was that it was, we wanted to choose a ex-Soviet backwater that people hadn't really heard about. And at the, that time, despite it being the seventh largest country in the world, Nobody had actually heard of Kazakhstan. Unfortunately, you know, if I'd chosen a country now, it would not be Kazakhstan because people have heard about it. Well, you know, as, as you say, you know, you created this character who is seemingly like really warm and lovable, although naive. But what he's saying is so horrible. It's so like sexist and anti-Semitic. And so people don't know how to react to him, of course. <laughs> and, um, you know, he's he's so like unenlightened. 
but um, the real person who he's talking to is, is, is always put on the spot. Are they going to agree with the things that he's saying? Are they going to argue with him? Are they going to hold their tongue out of politeness? Or are they going to hold their tongue because they're on camera? I mean, so gosh, like you're really putting people on the spot. Um, what's it like for you to be in character watching people be so uncomfortable as they try to figure out what they should do? Um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, it's fascinating to see how people are going to react. And it's it's exciting however they react, you know. When I was in the country and western bar in Tucson, Arizona, singing Throw the Jew Down the Well, I didn't know that the crowd were going to, you know, start chanting along and start singing Throw the Jew Down the Well. Uh, or even that certain members of the audience would start miming horns. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> you know, but it, it's exciting waiting to see what the response is, whether people are going to answer with integrity or whether they're going to, you know, reveal certain prejudices that they have. And I think, you know, part of the enjoyment of watching it is is the space between the question and the answer, where you're waiting to see how the person will react you know, for example, there's a, a moment in the movie where Borat asks, you know, what is the best gun to defend from a Jew? <laughs> and there is that moment. There's about two or three seconds before the gun shop owner answers, you know, and goes, actually, it's this, the Magnum 54 or whatever. Um, so I think there's the, that's part of the enjoyment, actually. Is, it's terrifying, know. though, when he says that, isn't it? It's like it's, Borat has asked him what's the best gun to kill a Jew, and he has an answer. <laughs> it's yeah. really scary. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it really is terrifying that you can go into a gun shop in certain parts of the country and get advised on the best gun to defend yourself from a Jew. Well, I'm glad. And, and actually, yeah. there, sorry, sorry, there was a lot of that uh, interview that we didn't actually show. There's about 20 minutes of uh, Borat asking him, you know, you know, but they want the gun that uh, you know shoot them very clearly because they can jump. They can jump very fast. And he goes, yeah, yes, I know. You know, you gotta. You know, this one's great. You know. You know, and sort of questions like, uh, will this gun be able to shoot the horns of a Jew from 50 meters? And he's like, you know, yes, yes, it's, you know, that'll be fine, you know. So <laughs> it was a long, protracted uh, discussion of, you know, the, the perfect technical rifle to uh, defend yourself from a member of the Semitic tribe. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned Throw the Jew Down the Well, the song that you sang at a bar in Tucson that was actually in the Ali G show, but not in the Borat yeah, that's movie. Right. And you're doing this in character as Borat. This is, I think this is like one of the most brilliant, brilliant pieces of comedy that I know of. Cause you, oh, thank you. That's very kind. I love it. You're in this bar and you know, as this character from Kazakhstan and, and the song starts, in my country there's a problem and that problem is transport. Okay, so far so good. But the next verse is, in my country is a problem and that problem is the Jew. And then the refrain is, throw the Jew down the well so my country can be free. And it's kind of an idiot's version of the final solution. Yep. Yep. I mean, it's a... Uh... I think Borat's impression of Jews is really, you know, has its origins in the medieval ages, you know. So his Jew has horns, you know, it is that kind of medieval anti-Semitic portrayal of, you know, this uh, demonic creature. And that's why, for example, in the running of the Jew, the Jews are these huge... Uh, 
color and uh, cleaver holding monsters, you know, with green faces and warts that are chasing, uh, you know, the poor, innocent Kazakh men. Why don't we hear a little bit of Throw the Jew Down the Well, which is on the Borat CD. If you see the Jew coming, you must be careful of his deed. You must grab him by his money. And I tell you what to do. Everybody, throw the Jew down the well. So my country can be free. That's Sasha Baron Cohen singing as in the character of Borat from the Borat CD. Um, you said that you didn't expect that the people in the bar would be clapping as you sang the song. So what was your reaction when people were really getting into it? Do you think that that meant that they were anti-Semitic or maybe they weren't really paying attention to the lyrics? Maybe it was noisy and it was hard to hear. Like, how do you interpret it? Um... That's an interesting question. I t- firstly, it was very clear what I was saying. So everyone, you know, was clearly heard "Throw the Jew Down the Well," and they were singing along. And I sang it a number of times. Um, the question is, does it reveal their anti-Semitism? You know, was everyone in the bar anti-Semitic? And I think, you know, there was a historian, not to bring it down and <laughs> to depress everyone. But there was a historian of the Holocaust and of Nazi Germany called Ian Kershaw who said quite an interesting thing, which was that the path to Auschwitz was paved with indifference. In other words, you don't actually have to be a, a rabid anti-Semite to allow certain things to happen. All you need to be is really indifferent. You can listen to a song and just go, oh, that's actually quite a nice song, and I'll sing along to it. You don't actually have to be a... You don't actually have to say, wow, these are really, really offensive lyrics. I'm going to stop. Uh, You know, I'm going to walk out the bar. But it's that indifference that is actually quite dangerous. But there's a debate, a very lively debate going on right now because of your work about whether this kind of comedy actually feeds anti-Semitism and hatred or mocks it in, in, in a way that shows how stupid and pointless it is. Obviously, you don't think that it's it's feeding anti-Semitism. I assume that if you do... Uh, no, I do. I do. I, you, you do think it's feeding no, anti-Semitism? It. No, no, no. I'm joking. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm joking. Right. So, so tell me why you think it's, it's, it's not harmful. Do you know what I mean? Tell me why you think it's not feeding anti-Semitism. Well, I think an interesting test is to see how it played with Jewish communities around the world. And, uh, for example, in Israel, the... This has been one of the most successful comedy films of all time. And there have been standing ovations at the end of a lot of performances. Um, And that's partly to do with the fact that Borat, when he speaks in Kazakh, he's actually speaking in a cross between Polish and Hebrew. Um, So there's a deep irony in this viciously anti-Semitic character actually speaking in the uh, uh, ancient Jewish language. Um, But I think... The reason that it's not actually encouraging anti-Semitism is that it's showing that all forms of prejudice are really delusional. So, for example, Borat believes that you know Jews were behind 
However, he also believes that Jews can shift their shapes into insects, you know, which is clearly delusional. My guest is Sasha Baron Cohn. We'll talk more after a break. This is Fresh Air. My guest is Sasha Baron Cohn, the creator of the characters Borat and L.E.G. You know, I was going to ask you if you could take liberties with this anti-Semitic character because you're Jewish yourself, because, for instance, you can have him speaking Hebrew. But at the same time, I was thinking, well, you also have the character Bruno, the, the, the gay fashion reporter, and he's gay, and you do a lot of, like, funny gay stuff in it, but you're not gay. So it's like you you're... Very brave as a comic, and will well, I'm yeah, I'm not gay. However, you're not lacking homosexuality in it. No, I mean I'm not gay. However, I have had a man's testicles rest on my chin, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I and it's been in the movie. So, I mean, technically, is that does that not make me gay? And for anybody who just didn't comprehend, there's there's this incredible wrestling scene <laughs> in um, in um, the Borat movie that um, that that he was just referring to. Um, so, but um, a- anyways, is it is it is it different for you to play a gay character not being gay than to play an anti-Semitic character and being Jewish? It, do, do, do you know well, a lot of people feel that they can take on characters if they are that kind of character themselves. Yeah. And that gives them liberties to to do the kind of humor that they wouldn't feel they had the right to do otherwise. Um, well, I think it would be different if Bruno was coming out with very homophobic um, or gay stereotypes. Uh, but he's not. He's really the subject of a lot of homophobia. I mean, the main difference between doing Bruno and Borat, and Bruno is, just for those who don't know, is this uh, Austrian gay fashion reporter, is that it's a lot more dangerous doing Bruno because there is so much homophobia. So, for example, when I was in um, doing Bruno at the Alabama-Mississippi football game uh, in Alabama a few years ago, 60,000 people started chanting, in the crowd, started chanting faggot. Um, and started throwing stuff at me and, um, you know, taunting me and spitting at me and threatening to kill me. Um, And those kind of situations are a lot more common when you're playing a gay character. It's almost as if homophobia is one of the last forms of prejudices that is really tolerated. Now, I I think the incident that you're referring to, there's a little clip of that in one of the Ali G episodes in the first season in which... Uh, you know, the character of Bruno has joined the line of cheerleaders. Is that the same game? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, but you don't show, you show some people like yelling nasty things in your face, but you don't show 60,000 uh, people in the stands uh, jeering you. Why did you decide not to include that? Well, we didn't, we, the honest reason is we didn't have them mi- uh, mic'd up. So we could, <laughs> you couldn't actually hear it. <laughs> but the the thing was, actually, that day, I knew it was going to get a little dangerous. So uh, I decided to hire a bodyguard. 
Um, but the moment that the crowd started jeering and booing and chanting faggot, uh, I turned to see where the bodyguard was and I saw the back of his head as he was running out of the stadium. Um, so he kind of left us high and dry. So what did you do? Um, well, I carried on in character. I mean, it's a bizarre feeling, but it was actually quite exciting. Uh, and in the character, you know, at the time, I, I get very invested in the characters and I kind of almost believe I am the character. So b feeling like a gay guy taunting 60,000 bigots, it felt actually very invigorating. And that's when I joined the, the line of the cheerleaders and started taunting the crowd. Because I knew it was uh, it was almost sacrilegious to them for a gay man to be standing on their football pitch. Um, and actually, the funny thing was, a few years later, I went down to Alabama to shoot Talladega Nights. Um, and I got introduced to the NASCAR audience at the, um, at the big Talladega race. And there was a, a crowd of 200,000 people. And um, I was playing a French... Once again, a French uh, gay character there um, in the movie Talladega Nights. And Will Ferrell's um, character was introduced first and everyone cheered for him. The whole crowd who were made up of genuine fans cheered for his character. And then they introduced my character as being from France. And the entire crowd started booing again. So it was actually the second time in Alabama that I'd been <laughs> booed at by a crowd of over 60,000 people. Sasha Baron Cohen will be back in the second half of the show. He's the star of the movie Borat, which is built around his original character. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Support for NPR comes from Barnes & Noble, publishers of the Barnes & Noble Classics Edition of Ovid's The Metamorphoses, in stores and online at bn.com. From the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in children, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. And from audible.com, where you can download and listen to fresh air in addition to audiobooks, magazines, and newspapers. audible.com slash fresh air. This is NPR, National Public Radio. Coming up, life before he started performing. We continue our conversation with Sasha Baron Cohn, the man behind Borat, Bruno, and Ali G.
This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross, back with Sasha Baron Cohn, the actor and writer behind the character Borat. The movie Borat is on a lot of 10 best lists and is nominated for two Golden Globes, Best Picture and Best Actor. Baron Cohn also created the character of Ali G, a hip-hop wannabe who hosts his own interview show. The Ali G Show ran for two seasons on HBO and is out on DVD. Articles that have been written about you have oh, described you as an observant Jew, and it's surprising to some people that you are practicing in your religion. I think because I think it's surprising because you break so many taboos with your humor, and in your humor, like nothing's sacred. So the fact that in your life some things really are sacred might come as a surprise to people. Well, I should probably qualify that. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm a religious Jew. I'd say that I'm very, very proud of my Jewish identity. I'm proud to be a Jew. And there are certain things that I do that are, you know, Jewish customs and traditions. Friday night, you know, I enjoy being with my family when I'm in England and, you know, we'll light the candles and, you know, a couple of times a year I will go to synagogue. And um, I try and keep kosher as well. So uh, those are things, but they're not really derived from, they're not really because I'm religious. They're more kind of traditional things and they're things that uh, that I do because I'm, you know, culturally and historically, you know, proud of my Jewish identity. Can I ask what your bar mitzvah was like? Um, yes, I actually provided the entertainment. I was very into breakdancing <laughs> oh, at the time. <laughs> Breakdancing? I was a break dancer. Yeah, I was a break dancer, <laughs> and uh, I ha- I put down the linoleum on the uh, floor <laughs> of the marquee, and me and my crew performed for about an hour and a half. Oh, that's so great! Yeah. <laughs> so there was no bad cover band. Uh, my brother actually provided the music. He actually was the composer for the Borat movie as well, so he's always been. Uh, providing the musical background. (laughs) I want to ask you about another scene in in the Borat movie. There's a scene in an evangelical church in which, as Borat, you are saved, and people are praying over you, and they're speaking in tongues, and present at the church are are both a congressman and a state Supreme Court chief justice. this struck me as one of the most unusual scenes I've ever seen in movies, because <laughs> here you are, a Jewish actor in character as this Kazakh anti-Semite who's in this church getting saved. And of course, nobody in the church seems to know that you're an actor doing all of this. So um, there's, I, I don't know where to start. Uh, let's start with, yeah. was it uncomfortable for you impersonating somebody who is Christian and getting saved in a church and having people really kind of praying for you. Um. I mean, the interesting thing about that scene was that it worked exactly as we needed it to work. Um, Because essentially the film was very experimental. We had two things that we had to accomplish in each scene. Each scene had to be funny, but it also had to achieve a certain story beat. It had to push the story forward. Um, And that really had never really been done before in a movie. And so in that particular scene, Borat was at his lowest point. He starts the scene at his lowest point ever. Uh, You know, he's contemplating suicide. He's almost killed himself the night before. He decides not to kill his chicken. (laughs) 
He's given up on his dream of marrying Pamela Anderson after finding out that she's no longer a virgin. Um, and, you know, he he really is at his lowest point ever. And so we needed a scene where he'd leave the end of Act 2 and emerge into Act 3 reinvigorated with full of life and with this renewed sense of purpose and... Uh, a renewed mission to actually wed and bed Pamela Anderson. And the church was the perfect opportunity to do that. Um, and the interesting thing was actually writing the scene. And uh, I have to say that a lot of the scenes, you know, we we wrote a kind of rough script of how we thought people would react and what we wanted from the scene. So we knew the beginning of the scene and how this we wanted the scene to actually you know go and the weird thing was that the church pastor was so predictable that he actually almost said everything that we anticipated him saying like so for example when you know Borat goes who can save me no one can save me we wrote in the script the pastor says there is someone who can save you Jesus can save you and that is that's almost word for word what he actually said so that was the bizarre thing was that it was the man was such a fundamentalist that he was he became incredibly predictable well you know this scene is just kind of uh, gripping and it it just raises so many que- questions about how you felt um you know well, yeah i it, i mean I'll, t- I'll tell you how i felt i mean it was it was actually it was a very, very strange experience as an actor. I mean, I totally lost myself in the role at that point. You know, when when they actually started, you know, saving Borat, I was there and it's just so overwhelming because you have about six men, you know, pressing on you at the time. I had a, a man on either side holding my arms and actually, interestingly enough, they start shaking your arms. So it looks like you're, you know, you're possessed or you're, you know, you're suddenly seized by this greater force. And then, you you know, you, you're, there's not much oxygen there. The, the pastor was shouting at me and saying, you can speak in tongues now, you can speak in tongues. And so when you actually start moving your tongue and start speaking, they're so excited that it's, it's this really overwhelming experience. Um, so it, it was really bizarre. You know, so what 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 did the people in the church know when you got there, or like typically, what do people know? What what kind of release form do you give them? What does the crew tell them about what to expect? They were told that um, there's a foreign journalist who's coming to do a piece on on you know that particular church, and he's at a low point in his life at the moment. He's had a particularly tough time while crossing America. And he might be looking for uh, some kind of spiritual salvation. <laughs> Do people ever feel betrayed afterwards when they see what the film really is? Um, I think most people don't. I think 99% of people don't. Um, you know, a lot of them hear about it. And I've obviously been doing this for many years. A lot of them hear about it through their kids who suddenly call them up and go, Dad, you're on TV, you're on the Ali <laughs> G show. And they're, 
they suddenly, you know, achieve this kind of street cred. So, uh, so they don't know until then? Like, you never no. go back to them and say, guess what? It was all, like, kind no. of candid camera or something. And they don't find out until someone tells them. <laughs> yeah, they don't find out until it goes on TV. Uh-huh. Or, you know, on the film. And that, you know, that's something that I'm quite rigorous about in that from the moment they meet me to the moment I leave, I'm fully in character. Um, you know, I don't. we didn't want to ever have that kind of, hey, gotcha moment where they go, oh, all right, it was a joke. Um, you know, because we want it to be a kind of real experience. Um, but, for example, it does, uh, there are certain people that, um, who are initially upset by it and then actually realize that it was actually beneficial for their careers or for their, um, for their, uh, you know, for their status. For example, there was a famous socialist um, politician in London called Tony Benn, who used to be actually Lord Benn, but gave up his uh, title. And I interviewed him as Ali G. And afterwards, he found out and he was very upset. But he wrote an article in The Times about a month later expressing how his initial feeling was that of betrayal and upset that this guy had, um, you know, basically hoodwinked him. But then he later explained in the article that he felt that the he actually had become a fan of, you know, the whole show and a fan of, you know, had started loving the character of Ali G because... Uh, the character of Ali G had actually given him an opportunity to explain to people finally what he actually believed, what socialism was. And because he had this ignoramus in the room with him who was <laughs> espousing the most uh, right-wing and totally selfish attitudes, he was able to kind of put down Ali G and really put his viewpoint across. So um, I think there's lots of people who, you know, really benefit from being in the film and, you know, being in the show before that. My guest is Sasha Baron Cohn, the creator of the characters Borat and L.E.G. We'll talk more after a break. This is Fresh Air. If you're just joining us, my guest is Sasha Baron Cohn, the uh, the man behind the characters of Borat, Ali G, and 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 Bruno. You know, in taking your characters into the real world, you're also taking physical combat comedy into the real world. And slapstick and physical comedy, it's some like the oldest stuff in comedy, like from vaudeville in the early days of movies. And it's hard to to do that in a fresh way. But you're you're incredible. I mean, like, there's a scene in the Borat movie in which you're in an antique store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's not a very high-priced antique store, but it's, it's an antique store. And suddenly you start falling and, like, knocking over all the, the dishes. And then each time you pick yourself up, you start falling over and knocking off more. And it's, it's really hysterical because it's in the real world. And, of course, the owner's just horrified looking at everything that's being ruined. And I'm thinking, too, as I watch it, that this isn't like... Um, uh, special effects China. This is like real stuff. You could really hurt yourself. I mean, it's it's very risky slapstick and in a way that I think slapstick usually isn't. 
Yeah, well, it was actually funnily enough. I did, I did cut myself, and I was actually bleeding for the remainder of the scene. So we actually cut for a little bit while I went off to the bathroom and washed off some of the blood. Um, but that was a tough physical set piece because I knew the, I knew the rough configuration of the shop. What happens beforehand, before each scene, is the director Larry Charles comes into the van and draws out the location so I can kind of visualize it in my mind. And by the way, at that point, I'm actually Borat. So he's speaking to me. <laughs> he's speaking to this <laughs> Kazaki reporter. Mm-hmm. And I'm answering, yeah, I'll say, I'll say, but, you know, maybe we'll put the camera here. Is the, you know, are the antiques over here? You know, so we're discussing the actual scene and he's drawing it all out. So I knew, I realized where those antiques were and I knew I had one chance to knock over all the cheapest antiques in the shop, you know. You know, we'd intentionally uh, positioned all the cheapest antiques in one particular area of the shop so that <laughs> so that the scene wouldn't cost too much money and so that we wouldn't also... <laughs> also so that we wouldn't cause any real upset to the people there. Um, but I knew, yeah, I knew I had one take to get it right and it was quite a tough um, set piece. I knew I had to fold, you know, fall over then slip on uh, this truck, then fall backwards, then put my head down to, you know, pick something up, stand up, knock a table over, and then fall backwards again and then fall onto the floor. And so it was this, you know, really convoluted routine. And luckily it worked. <laughs> well, one of the things I love about Borat is that, you know, he's such a funny character. He, <coughs> he, he makes kind of sex in the human body so unappetizing. <laughs> The, thank, the cost- thank you. I take yes, that as yes. a compliment. <laughs> the costumes That's that you actually, wear. That is actually my body. <laughs> no, I know. I have to say Borat's it's, body and my it's, body. It's the clothing, though. It's the clothing. The, thank the, you. The mesh thank underwear, you. that, that, that like, um, jockstrap bikini that, <laughs> yeah. that wraps around his... That's supported by a strap that goes around his neck. <laughs> yeah, well, I must say, actually, that Borat's underwear and... Um, is actually provided by my father. They, they, that was uh, my dad's underpants. Seriously? Uh, yeah, those are my dad's underpants, <laughs> which are which are actually made by the Norwegian Navy. Um, and uh, there was one occasion where I actually lost my underpants as Borat. Um, I was doing a scene, which actually didn't make it into the movie, where Borat, strapped for cash, starts work as a door-to-door salesman. And uh, he goes into one house and um, he's trying to sell them, you know, subscriptions to the local newspaper. And while he's there, by the way, you know, he hasn't washed. He's very poor. He goes, um, you know, can I use a bathroom, please? And uh, Borat emerges about five minutes later, naked, apart from he's wrapped in a towel, which is their towel. And he's uh, holding one of their toothbrushes and going, uh, which uh, toothpaste can I use? At which point I was thrown out of the house by this family. Uh, They called the police. And so I'm standing outside in uh, a towel which does not belong to me. (laughs) And I can hear police sirens getting closer and closer. And I'm looking to the director going, what do I do? Because, uh, And I was thinking in my (laughs) mind. still in character. (laughs) Yeah, obviously I'm still in character. And uh, I'm thinking my costume is in the bathroom of this, you know, of this house. (laughs) I'm standing in a town that does not belong to me. Now, if I run into the van and, you know, we we make a getaway before the police come, 
it means that I'm actually stealing some property, so I can be done for theft. However, if I take the towel off, I can be done for indecent exposure. So I was in this terrible dilemma. What do I do in the, you know, sirens were getting louder and louder. And in the end, I just ran into the van and, you know, I hid underneath the seat and got on the phone to my lawyer. Um, uh, still, by the way, in character, going, hello, what do I do? I do not want to be done for indecent exposure. Do I throw out the towel? Do I throw the towel out? And finally, um, I, I was taken to a safe location and we negotiated to get the uh, costume back and the underpants. Why did you have to talk to your lawyer at that point in persona? Why did I have to be in persona? I don't know. Basically, during the days, I stay as Borat. So I wake up, and then from the moment I get into the crew van till the moment I get home, I, I stay as Borat. And if the police arrested you, would you stay as Borat? Yeah. I mean, the the police did come, and we we had, I think there were 42 or 43 um, occasions where law enforcement agencies came and um you know stopped the scene for whatever reason and that that ranged from the nypd to the fbi to the secret service and whenever they stopped me i stayed in character because i never knew if it was something that we could use for the actual movie uh so when the secret service you know started questioning me outside the white house because they they were convinced that we were terrorists (laughs) because we were we were driving in an ice cream van past the White House, so we were clearly <laughs> we were clearly Al Qaeda. You know, I stayed in character because you never know when it's going to be something that's useful, and you know, and that happened a number of occasions. You know, uh, I mean, the film became increasingly hard to do because uh, various law enforcement agencies were intent on uh, stopping production or arresting, you know, me. And we had a rule which was basically that um, I couldn't get arrested because if I got arrested because I'm I'm not a U.S. citizen, it would essentially mean that production would have stopped. Um, but along the way, there were various other people that got arrested. So within the first week of shooting, um, actually the first Wednesday night, um, the line producer and the first AD were arrested and spent a night in jail. Uh, so there, were, there was always this constant fear of being arrested and trying to get the scene and trying to get the comedy before the police turned up. <laughs> if you're just joining us, my guest is Sasha Baron Cohn, and he does uh, Borat, Ali G, and, and Bruno. And I, I want to just ask you a couple of Ali G questions. You know, I've had, I've had uh, several uh, debates with friends of mine about whether the character of Ali G, who is this kind of hip-hop wannabe, who hosts his own TV show, and of course you do the character of Ali G. It's always always unclear to me whether he's a white hip-hop wannabe or whether he's a Muslim hip-hop wannabe because, you know, he has the name of Ali. He might be of Arabic descent and living in London and really want to be a hip-hop gangster. So so straighten me out. Um, You know what? I'd prefer not to. <laughs> I think it's important, actually, to keep that ambiguity. I mean, the important thing about Ali G is that he's not black and he is delusional so he believes that he is a you know a uh, a black hip hop artist from stains and he believes that his neighborhood is a rough ghetto when in fact it is this lovely leafy middle class suburb outside Windsor uh where swans um swim under the beautiful bridge 
So I think that's really what it is. It, it's it's about a guy. It, it's not important really whether he's Arabic or whether he's Jewish or whether he's Greek. It's important that he's deluded, really. You've done characters like Ali G and Borat in the United States and in England. Are there a lot of differences between um, what the character does in both countries and what the reactions to the characters are? Um, there are subtle differences, and there are certain people and certain types of people that the certain characters work better with. So, for example, in England... Um, Ali G and Borat worked very well with the upper class because they were so polite that they would, you know, keep this person in their room. You know, members of the working class might have thrown him out. Um, members of the middle class might not have revealed themselves as much. Um, and then, you know, there were certain sectors of society here in America that were also, you know, ideally suited for, you know, certain various characters so we found that the deep south was ideally suited for Borat because people were so polite and so welcoming of strangers and also so proud of their American heritage that they would you know talk to this person about American society and about American values you know for for an hour and a half. My guest is Sasha Baron Cohn the creator of the characters Borat and Ali G. We'll talk more after a break. This is Fresh Air. My guest is Sasha Baron Cohn, the creator of the characters Borat and Ali G. He co-wrote, produced, and stars in the film Borat. Um, it, you know, getting back to the the satires of anti-Semitism that you you do, um, your grandmother, I believe, grew up in Germany and fled Germany during the Third Reich. Is that right? Yes, that's right. What what year about? She left, I think she left in 1936. Was she... She was a, a ballet dancer. Mm-hmm. And um, actually the Nazis were incredibly fair because they had a rule, um, I think after the Nuremberg Laws, which was that any Jew who enrolled before the Nuremberg Laws was allowed to complete their education. But just <laughs> no Jews afterwards were allowed to complete their education. And so she had actually enrolled as a ballet dancer. Uh, in the Laban School before um, before the Nuremberg Laws. So she was allowed to, uh, she was basically the last uh, Jewish girl who was taught ballet in Germany. Hmm. So she stayed there till she was 30, till 1936. Did you ever try to be like a conventional actor? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, when I was at Cambridge, I did, um, you know, some Shakespeare. I did some Marlowe. You know, I performed Sir Honor de Bergerac. And it was actually really useful because the acting skills that I picked up there became very useful to create comic characters that were believable and real and weren't larger than life. Um, you know, and actually I went to drama school after leaving Cambridge. Um, and that, that was really useful as well. Um, did you do impressions or characters when you were young before you started doing them professionally? Yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed speaking in stupid voices. Me and my brother would always, uh, you know, speak in a kind of Ali G voice when we were walking around. Um, and then uh, I never really spoke as Ballrat or as Bruno. But yeah, I loved, you know, playing characters. And then it was really when I went to drama school afterwards, I went to the study with this uh, brilliant French um, teacher called Philippe Gaulier that I really started enjoying and taking pleasure in performing and, you know, doing these characters and started considering doing it, um, you know, professionally. Now that you're so much better known and your face has become so familiar in the United States as well as in, in England, can you still do the kind of comedy that you've been doing in which you take characters into the real world and people don't know that it's a persona. They don't know that the character is, is, is only a character. You know, I think that the success of the film has been a disaster. I mean, it's, it's totally destroyed any opportunity for me to make a film like this again, which is a shame. Um, I think it's going to be infinitely harder. So, um, yep, I'm going to have to start doing more scripted comedies. You know, I I think I've made it clear during this interview that I really love your work. At the same oh, time, you, at you. the same time, I'm bracing myself for all of these people who aren't nearly as talented as you are, taking the baton and kind of taking their characters into the real world and being a real nuisance. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. For, for which yeah. I won't blame you. <laughs> but uh, oh, thank you. That's very kind. But 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 um, don't 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 you, you can't blame that, me. Don't you, should you think blame that that's going to happen though? That there's going to be some real like second right versions of of Borat and all your other characters in other words that people will be taking their characters in the real world and not telling people who they are and it's going to be kind of annoying well some of it could be annoying and some of it could be you know much better than anything I've done so you know we have to wait and see but I think that that's what happens when you do something that's new and fresh and you know that was really the challenge with this movie which was it was an experiment you know, we didn't know whether we could make a movie like this because the concept of taking a fictional character into the real world and somehow making a story out of it was something very new. Uh, so having real people push a story forward and push a plot forward was something that had never really been done before. And uh, weirdly enough, it was an experiment that worked. So... You know, if it gets copied, then uh, I'm happy that it's a, a form of cinema that can continue. I want to thank you so much for talking with us. No, thank you very much for having me on. I've, I've appreciated it.